Non-compete agreements have uh, surprisingly been everywhere for a very long time. The non-competes are really old. I object to non-competes. They're anti-competitive, bad for innovation, bad for everything except the profits of the largest enterprises. We studied a law in uh, that was passed in the state of Washington in 2020. Yay, Washington. <laughs> the Washington paper suggests that it's pretty straightforward to justify a ban covering at least 80% of workers. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Nick, you're a a really rich and powerful guy, uh, you know. Uh, That's what I like to tell myself. Goldberg. Yeah, an important, an important figure <laughs> in your industry, and <laughs> and I'm just curious why it is, given your stature, that you have never forced me to sign a non-compete agreement. Oh God, where would you go? <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> that is that is one of the advantages of this very thin labor market yeah, right. that you and I have. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Nobody else would want me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but it turns out not all uh, labor markets are as thin as ours. And uh, non-compete agreements have uh, surprisingly been everywhere for a very long time. Yeah, it, it is true. And um, it, it's such an interesting subject because it affects such a high proportion of workers in America today. It certainly, you know, when I started out in my career, it really did not. And I think, you know, a non-compete agreement was something that you might ask the senior executives of a large firm, but in particular, a large technology firm to sign. And then over the years, it became just this insidious thing that big firms asked everyone to sign as a way to make, you know, just, it's just a power play, right? If you, right. you sign a non-compete, then your chances of taking your skills somewhere else go down dramatically, which means I can treat you worse and pay you less than I right. might otherwise have to. And, and it is, by the way, Nick, uh, one of the things where trickle-down economics has been totally true. These non-competes have had trickle-down yes, <laughs> over did. the years, all the way into fast food restaurants That's where right. infamously companies like uh, Jimmy John's yeah. had for a while forced their sandwich artists, is that yes, what they called them? Exactly. So they couldn't take those trade secrets of yes. how to put cold cuts on a piece of bread elsewhere, right. or uh, even more infamously, Burger King, who said that uh, had a non-compete that prevented their employees from working at other Burger Kings. Right. Yeah. So that you could make sure that you could continue to exploit whoever it was and they couldn't go across the street and become you know, a manager or whatever it was. Yeah. Or, so, or make 50 cents an hour more. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. just, it's an incredibly egregious practice and very much in the news because the Federal Trade Commission has moved to ban them completely. But, you know, uh, as always, Washington State was uh, a bit ahead and we banned non-competes and any worker under who made less than $100,000 a year a few years ago. 
And our guest today is Evan Starr, who's an assistant professor of management at the University of Maryland, but has a PhD in um, labor economics and studies non-competes and has done a study on the effect of Washington's law, both on workers and businesses too. And so this is, I mean, I must say that it, just as a matter of principle, I object to non-competes. They're anti-competitive, bad for innovation, bad for everything except the profits of the largest enterprises. And so, I, you know, but I've never seen empirical data about the effect of banning non-competes. So it'll be very interesting to talk to Evan about what he found. My name is Evan Starr, and I'm an associate professor at the University of Maryland's Robert H. Smith School of Business in the Department of Management and Organization. Uh, I'm a labor economist by training, and a lot of my research deals with restrictive covenants, which are restrictions on workers about what they can do after they leave employment. And so I've been interested in how those restrictions impact workers, how they impact firms, uh, society, uh, how we should think about regulating them, what the impact of various regulations are. And so a lot of my work has been in that space over the last decade or so. Evan, let's start with the basics. What is a non-compete? How does it work? Sure. A non-compete agreement is a term within a, an employment agreement, or it could be in an employee handbook. And it typically says that after a worker leaves, they can't join or start a competitor for some amount of time, typically a year or two. And often within a geographic boundary, which could be a few miles from the office, it could be the state, or it could be uh, the, the whole world uh, in, in the most extreme case. That sounds remarkably anti-market, <laughs> anti <laughs> anti-competitive, anti-competitive. Yeah, that's not what capitalism is supposed to be about. I thought it is a direct restriction on competition. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm. So, do you know anything about the history of non-competes? Absolutely, non-competes are really old. Uh, the first non-compete case dates back to fourteen fourteen. Wow. A famous case called the Dyer's case. Um, no kidding. It, Seriously, the it, it's often said that non-competes were, um, you know, are, are, are in modern times are used for executives, but the history of non-competes goes back a long time. And, and what they were, they were used in that era, uh, this is the guild era, where a master craftsman would take on an apprentice and train them in a skill, like being a mason or something like that. And after the apprentice was trained, the master craftsman didn't want to compete with the apprentice, the now trained apprentice, uh, in the same product market. And so that's where these uh, agreements arose. Interesting. We could do a whole podcast on that. That's a really that's, a, that's an amazing fact. We'll do um, our our guild episode. Yeah, guild. Yeah, it, but uh, tell us about non competes today in the United States. You know, non compete agreements have been around for a long time in the United States as well. We don't know precisely when they became common. The first national survey was done in 2014. And since then, we've had several additional surveys, surveys of workers, surveys of firms, uh, surveys of certain occupations. Uh, if you want to just kind of the broad landscape, the estimates of non-compete use vary on the low end from 16% of workers up to 50% at the very high end. Most estimates are within the 20% uh, to 22%, 24% range. Wow. But so one in five, one in four workers in America has been required to sign a non-compete, you know, as a provision of becoming employed. That's right. That's right. One in four, one in five, currently bound by one. Uh, it, it may be higher than that. Uh, and if you if you wanted to know, you know, has a worker ever been bound by one, that number is closer to 
Yeah. So wow. I'm curious, you mentioned, you said either assigned to non-compete or it's in the employee handbook. Is that in any way enforceable if they put a non-compete in the employee handbook and you actually haven't signed a non-compete agreement? Well, you may you may sign something that says, I agree to the terms laid out in the employee uh, handbook. Uh, oh. Yeah, which you naturally did not read. <laughs> So tell us about your recent study. What did you study and why did you study it? Yeah, so I have, I have a recent study uh, that we just released with Michael Lipsitz, and, um, who's at the Federal Trade Commission, and, and Takuya Hiraiwa, who's a PhD student at Maryland with me. And what we were looking at is this, uh, this debate on non-compete agreements, which, uh, which really, as I said, dates back to the 1400s, but has just taken off in the last few years. And one of the reasons it's taken off is because there's been all of this evidence documenting the harms of non-compete agreements on workers, on markets. So this, some of the prior studies looked at, for example, what happened when Hawaii banned non-compete agreements for tech workers? What happened when Oregon banned non-competes for low-wage workers? And all of those studies suggest that when you ban non-compete agreements for low-wage workers or even high-tech workers, that workers benefit. They move jobs more frequently, their wages rise, and so there's been a, a several studies of that variety suggesting that banning non-compete agreements is probably a win for workers. Yeah. But recently, the Federal Trade Commission has now proposed uh, banning all non-compete agreements. Yes. And there's been significant pushback from the Chamber of Commerce and from trade associations suggesting that non-compete agreements are beneficial. They, that they are <laughs> beneficial to us, the Chamber That's of right. Commerce argued right and That's and to right. society because you know when the chamber of commerce does well we all do well yeah <laughs> <laughs> so the, the the arguments that the chamber of commerce makes are that firms need non-compete agreements for things like trade secrets uh you know a confidential uh lists you know of clients um customers things of that nature so if you wanted to start a business and or you wanted to run your business and, and you you hired somebody and you know you got to share with them the the trade secrets or the the you know the, the clients uh the client list that you've developed they might take that and run across the street and start up against you and so uh if you don't have non-competes then firms might be less willing to invest in developing those trade secrets or developing those client lists in the first place that's the argument uh from a theoretical perspective and of course you have to set aside the fact that we already have other ways of addressing those uh, those concerns like NDAs, agreements not to solicit clients, trade secret law, et cetera. But that's the argument that they're making about non-compete agreements. Well, I mean, these are smart business people. They wouldn't be doing this unless there was an efficiency gain, right? That's the way the market works. That's 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 the claim. That's the claim. So our, our paper is really trying to put this to the test. And, um, you know, given all the harms that prior research has documented, we're, our, our question is, do firms really put their money where their mouth is? And uh, to do that, we studied a law in, uh, that was passed in the state of Washington in 2020. And the, uh, the law- Yay, Washington. Yay, Washington. <laughs> the law is a really interesting one because it invalidated non-compete agreements for workers making $100,000 or less. And they tied it to inflation. So I think today the number is about $116,000. And that covers roughly 80% of Washington workers. And the reason uh, that, that we can study how much firms value the ability to enforce non-competes with this policy shock is because if you, can, if you think about what happens right at 100000 you take a worker who's making $99,000. And in 2019, a firm in Washington has a chance of enforcing that worker's non-compete. But in 2020, that chance is zero because they're under this earnings threshold. 
But this is the key. The, the firm doesn't have to leave that worker under the threshold. They could, on their own volition, give them a small raise. Yes. They could give them an end-of-year uh, discretionary bonus to get them over that threshold so that they have the opportunity to mm -hmm. enforce their non-compete. You can think of it like it's like, a, it's like a voluntary minimum wage. When would firms hit a voluntary minimum wage? When they, the gains that they, uh, they get from hitting that, that voluntary minimum wage exceed the costs, right? So what would you expect if firms really valued the opportunity to enforce these guys' non-competes? You would expect them to give you know, workers near, near $100,000 a raise, small raise, you know, in an extreme case of a hundred, few hundred bucks, a thousand dollars. So that's the test. The test is, do we see more workers at a hundred thousand and just above after this law is passed relative to before? And our findings suggest that uh, firms are not giving workers raises to reach these voluntary thresholds uh, in the law. Uh, and that's in any industry. Uh, it's in it's in industries like professional technical services. It's in manufacturing. Uh, and so our, our conclusion with a bunch more work that we've done here is we, we also surveyed attorneys in Washington to figure out what's going on. And our broad conclusion is that for at least the 80th percentile of workers, firms do not appear to value the ability to enforce their non-competes as they have revealed by not paying workers anymore to get them above that threshold. And by comparison, this is very different from what we've seen with the overtime threshold, where there is clear evidence that uh, when you when states have raised the overtime threshold, uh, companies have uh, taken employees who were had salaries near that threshold and were more likely to raise them over it so as not to be subject to the overtime laws. That's right. And there's another recent paper looking at another way to get around that, which is to change people's job titles to make them look like they're mm -hmm. managerial. Yeah. And so there's a there's a paper that finds firms very creative use of job titles yes. as a way to skirt overtime restrictions. Right. Yeah. So they clearly value skirting overtime restrictions, whereas there's no evidence that they value enforcing these non-compete agreements. So the question is, why don't they value it? And if they don't value it, why are they having employees sign it? So uh, the lawyers in the, in the survey, you know, so I'm not a lawyer, but I joined the Washington State Bar Association to for this project. Uh, and, and we surveyed attorneys operating in Washington. We asked them, why don't employers give these workers raises? You know, and, and the attorneys told us there are two reasons. One is that firms have other tools. They have non-disclosure agreements. They have agreements not to solicit clients. They can rely on those instead of non-compete agreements. So they don't really need to, you know, use the non-compete or enforce the non-compete. The second reason is that they often don't have to go to court to enforce non-compete agreements. And so the actual law of the land doesn't matter that much, for at least for workers at $100,000. And you can think about this in the following sense. You know, firms are still using non-compete agreements in Washington. They're getting sued in several class action lawsuits. But the value to the firm of the non-compete is often in the chilling effect that it has on mm -hmm. workers. A, a worker with a non-compete agreement, they, they still might have to file a lawsuit to get out of even a frivolous non-compete that is now unenforceable under the law. Right. And so, you know, often the the contract itself is what uh, what what chills worker mobility as opposed to what the law actually says. So it's an intimidation tactic. That's right. And and it could be it could be it could be that you know if you're a worker and you 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 try to you know move from firm A to firm B, uh, once firm B finds out you have a non-compete, they can also drop you because they don't want to be sued for tortious interference. Yeah, but uh, you know at the end of the day, it's just a it's just a trick to 
you know, increase the power differential between firms and workers. And I think it, uh, you know, it's been my experience that it works super well in many cases. And, you know, I think I've used this example before on the podcast, the woman who cuts my hair and works for uh, one of the larger sort of local hair salons. You know, when I spoke to her about it, when we we were somewhat engaged in Washington state in changing that law and, and eliminating non-competes, you know, I was very surprised by how clearly she how clear she was on the fact that she had signed a non-compete and she couldn't go cut hair for somebody else, basically, which is absolutely nuts. Like it's absolutely yeah. insane to have a provision which enables a hair salon to prevent their employees from cutting hair for another hair salon. I mean, that's just, yeah. it's it just the most egregious anti-competitive behavior. A surprising uh, fact about hairstylists and salons is that uh, workers in salons are the fifth most common litigant in non-compete cases. <laughs> That's amazing. Why? Well, I think the answer is probably that uh, if if a worker develops a loyal following, ah. then they change the power dynamic within the uh, within the, the the firm, right? So if a hairstyle, right. if everyone will follow their hairstylist to the end of the earth then that hairstylist can leave and move to a rival and they can take all the clientele. They can start their own shop. And the the firm, the firm cannot control what the clients do, right? The firm has, you know, they, they are, they're limited. They have, they don't have less control at least, but what they can do with the stylists is they can say, Hey, you can't do this. And that thereby controls the client. So that's pretty much uh, back to the guilds of the 15th century. Very much so. Yes. You had mentioned uh, earlier on that when, we ban non-competes. There's evidence showing that this is good for workers. Higher wages, it's easier for them to move jobs. In your recent report, you also looked at what was the impact on businesses. Obviously, they claim they were imposing these non-competes because there was some economic advantage to it. So, did banning non-competes or limiting them in Washington state have any negative impact on these companies? Uh, we, we found that there were no effects on the, the the value of publicly traded companies from this ban, which again covered about 80% of the workforce. And there's several other anecdotal pieces that that can help kind of help us understand maybe why that is. If you think about um, some of the, the main firms operating in Washington, you know, think about Microsoft, for example. You know, they deal mm -hmm. with a ton of sensitive information. Well, after this law passed, Microsoft said, okay, well, we're just going to drop non-compete agreements for everybody, you know, except for our, our, our top most executives. So right. this is Microsoft, a very savvy tech company, saying yeah. we, don't, we don't need these, right? Yeah. Um, you, you also have Amazon. Amazon was actually involved in, uh, reportedly involved in setting the threshold in Washington. You know, so so what do you make of that? If a firm is involved in setting a threshold that covers eighty percent of workers in Washington, in some sense, what that tells you is that they Amazon also revealed the point at which they don't care. <laughs> right. uh, so here we have two major tech companies telling us that they don't care about non-compete agreements for a large chunk of the workforce. Yeah, if you take out the warehouse workers who make less than eighty thousand dollars a year, you know, <laughs> no one, no one at Amazon headquarters makes less than $80,000 a year, right? I, I'm not sure, but I, yeah. I assume I that mean, people yeah. at Amazon are making a lot more money than that. 
Yeah, at, correct. Uh, at least yeah. at, at the headquarters, yeah. Interesting. So uh, obviously the big news in the non-compete space is the effort by the FTC to ban all non-competes uh, nationally. What's your perspective on that? Yeah, so I think that you know the, the way I see the paper that we're talking about in Washington in, in this all-out ban is that the, the, the Washington paper suggests that it's pretty straightforward to justify a ban covering at least 80% of workers. Uh, the, the only question then is the remaining 20%. You know, and presumably at some point, firms would really care, you know, maybe top executives. And I think that's where the debate really should be. You know, these are executives who have the keys to the kingdom, so to speak. So how, how do we feel about non-compete agreements, you know, for those workers? And I think people come out on two sides. You know, one is, okay, uh, the executives have all this information and know-how. They also have attorneys negotiating their contracts. So we should feel fine about attorney, you know, executives having non-compete agreements. And then there's the other side, which says, look, even a non-compete with an executive can still be harmful. And there's a recent paper by Leon Shi, uh, which is forthcoming in Econometrica, which is uh, one of the uh, most impossible to get into economics journals. And she studies the optimal regulation of non-compete agreements in the market for executives. And her finding is that the optimal policy for executives uh, is close to a ban. And you, you have to think about why that is. What's her main argument? The argument is that non-compete agreements impose costs on others who are not party to the contract. Okay, so the idea is this. Take an executive, they're at firm A, and they've negotiated over this contract, they've looked at it, they've, they've come to an agreement on what they think is best for them and firm A. And then firm B comes along, and it turns out firm B is a much better fit for, firm, uh, for the executive, right? The executive could create so much more value at firm B than at firm A, but the executive cannot move to firm B because of the non-compete agreement. And so what ha happens in this case is you have a, a situation in which you know, there's a privately agreed to contract, which is mutually beneficial, but there's third party harm. There's harm to another party who was not, uh, was not part of the bargaining process over that agreement. And that, that could be firm B. It could also be if that executive is going to go start a new firm and create a new product that was going to exist and benefit consumers. That also includes consumers. They could also be harmed by those right. agreements. And there's a paper by Mike Lipsitz and Mark Tremblay that makes that point. And so the whole idea is that maybe non-compete agreements, even for executives, can be harmful because they, uh, they, they impose costs that the rest of us bear. Yeah, well, absolutely. And I think that, that non-competes are a reflection of a neoliberal economic view that the most important thing is the success of specific individual firms and that, mm. you know, as long as the big companies are doing well, we should be happy when in fact, it's quite clear that there's a very big distinction between what is good for individual capitalists and what's good for capitalism generally. And I think what those two other papers point to is that the economy overall massively benefits from more robust competition. And if highly skilled people cannot leave their current employer to go deploy those skills in different and better ways, then the rate of innovation slows and the number of choices that consumers have slows. And just generally, the only thing that happens is that the existing powerful firms get more powerful at the expense of the broader economy. So it's a it's an incumbency protection 
policy. Racket. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, that, that's what the evidence uh, indeed suggests. And and I'll just I'll just highlight here that you know there are two examples that I think really capture these ideas. And one is the case of Silicon Valley, and of course California uh, made non-competes unenforceable in 1872. And there's this whole debate about the rise of Silicon Valley and the role of non-competes. You know, I think it's it's worth pointing out that from the FTC's perspective, executives in in, in Silicon Valley have figured out how to deal with these agreements. Yeah. Right. Uh, it doesn't seem, you know, it doesn't seem to have slowed Silicon Valley. And let's be clear. Like, I don't think any of us are advocating for s- trade secret theft. Right. You know, there, yeah. we have other laws to deal with that. You know, you can you can have a, a, a different business idea in your same industry uh, and not be allowed to pursue it. You know, I think the other thing I want to highlight is that there's only one occupation in the whole United States for which non-competes have been prohibited for over 50 years. And that occupation is the practice of law. Lawyers themselves are prohibited from entering into non-compete agreements in every state, and uh, it's really fascinating because uh, lawyers. Jeez, I wonder why. Not... <laughs> <laughs> well, the, this is it. The, the justification for the lawyer non-compete ban is that the 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 relationship between a client and an attorney is sacred, and if attorney has a non-compete agreement and they try to change employers and they have to sit out of the labor market. Then that non-compete has just severed the relationship between the client and the attorney, and that relationship and their money. is and sacred. Their money. <laughs> yeah, that the client, the attorney, and their paycheck, and the attorneys <laughs> would prefer to keep those paychecks rolling. Here's the efficiency. I'm going to make the chambers efficiency argument, Nick. Yeah, yeah. This is it. The it, attorneys can have non-compete agreements because that would interfere with their ability to enforce other companies uh, non-compete, non-compete agreements, agreements. exactly <laughs> unbelievable <laughs> well evan that is a fact another fact i did not know you're full of really interesting facts of course attorneys are exempt yeah so you, you'll notice it's always it's always rich to hear them you know talking about how much we need these agreements when when they just changed firms you know, they got to start their new firm. And of course, if they had non-competes, none of that uh, would have been possible, at least much more difficult. You know, I just did not know that. It's just so rich. Just cannot wait for the hearings to take place where all these attorneys are going to be arguing on behalf of industry uh, that non-competes uh, should exist without having the damn things apply to them. That's just, it's too good. It's just well, too this good. Is, this is, I mean, I think, I think the key... The key point is that, uh, you know, the, the American Bar Association justified this prohibition because of harm to a third party, the clients. Right. Right. right? And I think that's the that is the same perspective of the FTC, that non-compete agreements are unfair methods of competition because they harm others who are not party to that agreement, namely the firm and the worker. And I think that that, that logic is actually the same. And that's how you get to an all-out ban as opposed to carving out executives. Yeah. And by the way, you know, capitalism offers many ready answers to these challenges of having people leave, mostly having to do with just paying them more, (laughs) right? Like if you don't want your employees to leave, you should treat them kindly and pay them well. (laughs) Yeah. Like maybe show show them the respect of not imposing a non-compete agreement. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Instead of trying to intimidate. Yeah. Because what you really want in an employee is somebody who's totally intimidated to stay. That's why they're working for you because they're afraid of you. Yeah, exactly. So Evan, we always ask a benevolent dictator question. Um, I think I know the answer. If you were in charge, what would you do? Politics aside. 
with respect to this? You know, I, I prefer to be a researcher and not a policymaker. I don't envy the the decisions that they have. But but given that the work that I've done in this in this space, uh, you know, my my sense is that you you could justify a ban on not the existing evidence could justify a ban on non compete agreements, and if not a full ban, then a ban for from nearly uh, nearly all uh, workers. Yeah. Um, you know, there there are some gaps in the literature that I think we would it would be nice to have some more evidence to fill. But I think that the existing body of evidence you know, is largely on the FTC side here. All right. That was a timid answer, but we'll accept it. <laughs> Thank uh, you. <laughs> and one final question. Why do you do this work? You know, I was interested in, um, well, in finding a, dis- a dissertation topic. And uh, this is about 2011 or so. And I, um, I learned about non-compete agreements and uh, just became fascinated by the history. You know, and you had a bunch of legal scholars debating this for a long time. I mean, just just it goes back forever. And you have people talking about, you know, non-competes and the rise of Silicon Valley. You have people talking about non-competes as modern day slavery. And so when I started looking at the empirical literature, I had found some work by Matt Marks, by uh, by Olaf Sorensen, Lee Fleming. But it was so uh, it felt to me like we were missing the big picture here. And so really the last decade of my research life has been trying to understand how the fine print of our employment contracts matters for workers and and what policymakers can do about it. Fascinating. Well, thank you for being with us. Thank you for doing uh, the study. It's really, it's actually really interesting. Although I suppose on reflection, not that surprising that firms didn't turn themselves inside out when these were imposed. And, uh, you know, I think you made a very shrewd choice uh, in studying this topic because it's very uh, it's very relevant today, very important. Thanks so much. Yeah, it's uh, it's been it's been an area where you just get deeper and deeper into it, and uh, it becomes more and more interesting. So I love I'm, it. I'm really uh, enjoyed studying. So Goldie, we talk about middle out economics all the time, and in the outro of these podcasts. Uh, we're going to try and center our discussions a little bit more around that. And there very much is a middle out moment here mm-hmm. around non-competes. I think it's it's incredibly straightforward to understand that from a middle out economics perspective, the fastest way to grow the economy is from the bottom up in the middle out. And that means that the less power large corporate interests have, and the more power workers and smaller enterprises have, the more dynamic, the more competitive, the more effective markets become. And non-competes are are just the canonical example of the wrong thing to do if you want to have robust economic growth, (laughs) because it's, it's like literally sclerotic. And there's there's an important economic principle here that we've talked about before uh, that's really at the heart of middle out. And it's this is not just a, a moral principle. Yeah, uh, it is. It is a, an economic one. And that is what we call the inclusionary principle. That's right. Which is, you know, obviously we say the economy grows from the middle out and the way to grow the middle class is to include more people in it. And Correct. non-competes are exclusionary they are right they they limit the ability of workers to you know compete for higher wages to yeah. move to jobs that better suit them either because it 
better suits their skills or their interests or is closer to home. So it's a shorter commute. And what you see in the empirical evidence is the inclusionary principle at work in all aspects of the economy. We see that workers do better. They are earning more money and they are more uh, capable of switching jobs when they want to. We see that it is better for third parties because it's by including more people and allowing employees to move around. Uh, it is more efficient for the economy. It's more competitive. It's more innovative. And then we also see that it's not bad for these companies either. That yeah. in fact, these non-compete agreements uh, were never efficient and they never created growth within these companies. And we know that because they don't value them. Yeah. And uh, the stock markets have not uh, uh, brought down the value of their stock at all when yeah. this ban was put in place. So it is a great example of the inclusionary principle in action. Absolutely. When include more people in the economy. It's better for everybody. It is. It is indeed. Uh, the, the, the whole thing about how old non-competes are is an absolutely <laughs> fascinating fact. Uh, just, it, of course, it makes perfect sense, particularly in the gilded, uh, the guild age. Uh, but we no longer work in one of those. Uh, and of course, the whole lawyers being exempt is just too, <laughs> it's too good, isn't it? I just. The lawyers guild writing its own rules. Oh, yeah. <laughs> of course. Of course. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.